Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and ebooks online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Have you been researching and learning about regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building for a while, but are still a bit unsure of where to start? Are you new to these topics and feeling overwhelmed about the sheer scope of information and knowledge that's out there to be absorbed? Are you a seasoned professional in the field looking to expand your experience and expertise with other professionals who are pushing the boundaries of regenerative projects? Well, you're in luck. Here at Abundant Edge, we have just what you need to take the next essential steps towards putting the information from these podcasts, interviews, books, and articles into action. We offer courses for beginners, intermediates, and even seasoned professionals to learn from successful regenerative business owners, farmers, builders, and other artisans who are keen to share their knowledge. Our teachers and facilitators have been working and experimenting tirelessly to provide the most up-to-date information available to help you put your skills and efforts to use in regenerating the planet and transforming the global economy into one that abandons the outdated model of consumption and destruction into one of health, stewardship, cooperation, and abundance. Come and get your hands dirty. You can get a full list of courses and trainings as well as volunteer opportunities now at AbundantEdge.com. We're looking forward to seeing you here. In my focus and passion for designing beautiful, functional, and holistic buildings and landscapes, it's easy to get caught up in the macro and forget the micro. Or to put it in another way, for as important as the big picture is, the interactions at the ground level and the beauty of the relationships that you can develop with the plants that enrich the earth are certainly not to be forgotten. For insight on these relationships, I turn today to Lee Reich, a master gardener who holds a graduate degree in soil science and a doctorate in horticulture, and who has written many books on gardening over the years, to talk about his new book, The Ever-Curious Gardener, in which he explores the observations he's made from his own experience with his plants and some of the science behind why they behave the way they do. Now, in this interview, we talk about soil science and compost, plant propagation, and restoring science to its rightful place in American society, and much more. Though there's a good bit of science talk in this session, Lee has a remarkable way of making it fun and engaging. So now I'll turn things over to Lee. Hey Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. How are you doing? Good, and thanks for having me here. Hey, it's my pleasure. Now, I just got a chance to read through your book, The Ever-Curious Gardener, using a little natural science for a much better garden, and I really enjoyed it, and I would love to ask you a bunch of questions about it. So what do you say we just jump right on in? Let's do that. All right, so if you could start by telling our listeners a little bit about your background and how you got interested in gardening and then started to pursue it as a career. 
Okay, it was it wasn't planned. It just sort of happened. And uh, I started out. I was you know took a, a somewhat standard route. I was in uh, uh, in college and uh, studying chemistry, and then my plan was to go to graduate school in chemistry and then become a professor of chemistry. And I got as far as graduate school. Actually, I was studying quantum chemistry. And about three semesters into it, I was doing really well, but I decided that it was becoming sort of meaningless to me. And I thought maybe I should do something uh, more different. And uh, uh, to make a long story short, I moved to – I actually dropped out of school, moved to Vermont for a year, and basically pondered what I was going to be doing and did a lot of other things, did a lot of hiking and playing pool, and uh, also read a lot about gardening. And after a year of that, I decided why well, I really wanted to get into gardening. And the way I chose to do that was to go back to graduate school and get a graduate degree first in soil science. And then I got another graduate degree in horticulture. And uh, the besides us taking classes and, and studying this, I also become a ma- became like a mad gardener. I would I'd just garden so intensively. That's all I wanted to do. And uh, so so I really was so, sort of in heaven because I was learning every day. I didn't come from an agricultural background at all. So I didn't know anything at all about gardening. And I every day I was learning a lot in the classroom. And then I'd go home and I'd uh, do my gardening. And uh, and I did that for a number of years. I actually ended up uh, getting a doctorate degree in horticulture. Ended up working for the USDA uh, Soil Conservation Service and the USDA Agricultural Research Service, and then for Cornell University in ag research. All the time gardening uh, quite intensively. And uh, and then the job at Cornell ended, and I decided that it'd be nice to be able to just work from home. And write about uh, gardening, and uh, and also do it. I could go right outside my back door and, and just keep doing it very intensively. So that's what I did. And uh, and I just the sort of genesis of my property is so I used to have three quarters of an acre, which is very feasible. And you know, since I wrote about gardening, this is what most people could do. And then I actually bought a couple more acres right adjoining my property to the south and that's when i really went crazy because instead of having say uh you know w- one one fruit i grow is uh pawpaws which are a oh, native are wonderful. fruit that's yeah not papayas which are i know down in the tropics you also no, call papayas pawpaws yeah <laughs> but uh so this is pawpaws but just as an example so i previously for my three quarters of an acre i had two pawpaws trees and then i thought well, since I have this acreage and since I write about it, I should test a whole bunch of different varieties and see how to grow them, you know, better. So instead of two, I planted 20. And then, you know, I also grow hardy kiwi fruit. Instead of planting two, I planted 20. So that was crazy. And uh, although I'm still doing it many decades later. And uh, that's when I decided I can no longer call this a garden. And, uh, you know, this is what the average normal person is going to do or perhaps should do so i started calling this a farm den which is more than a garden less than a farm and when i have uh where i do a lot of workshops here and when i have workshops here the first thing i tell tell everybody is don't do this at home this is just for demonstration and uh but hopefully some people do do it at home and they'll be in the same bind as i with tons of trees to take care of but it is a lot of fun very interesting, and I get a lot of really good-tasting, healthful food. Fantastic. So that's how I got here. 
Yeah, so I'm curious to know, since you went so much deeper than the average gardener by actually getting graduate degrees in soil science and horticulture, how much of your formal learning and your experimentation in the garden sort of percentage-wise informed the way that you garden and how much you learned? Yeah, well, I don't know if I could give you a percent, but uh, I know that was sort of the the, uh, genesis for my book because one day I was making compost and I was thinking, you know, you know, I actually, my since my first graduate degree was in soil science, I really have a deep respect for the soil. I really, really take good care of it. I, and uh, so I make a lot of compost, which is really good for the soil. And uh, so I was making compost, and I make it uh, very deliberately, and I, I think I make very good, well, some, it has been tested, the compost, and it's uh, been shown to be really good compost. So I, so I was thinking when I, Add stuff to the compost pile. Really, how, what I'm adding, how I'm adding it, how much moisture I'm adding to it, uh, all these different things that go into making my compost pile really speak to what I learned both academically and from years of experience and from uh, speaking to a lot of other gardeners and and scientists. And uh, so then I was thinking, well, there's a lot of things like that. You know, for instance, when I'm pruning my fruit trees, uh, you know, I, I put a lot of thought into it both uh, but there's a lot of unconscious things going on too and this really reflects uh i don't know as i said i don't know percentage wise but uh i think it's a large percentage of what i do uh speaks to the science that i learned in in many different ways because i also read a lot still about about gardening and read a lot of research articles and i was thinking that most people, if they learned a little of the science that's going on, at least, they would have a lot better garden. So that was sort of the beginnings of my book, uh, just to try and give some basic science of what's going on in the soil or when you're pruning or when fruit are ripening or, you know, all these different aspects and uh, and then show how it can be practically applied, you know, right then and there in the garden and then you get uh, better better plants it's, it's sort of interesting because you know a lot of people garden they don't read anything about gardening which is fine and uh and they get good gardens or good enough gardens and uh the, the thing about gardening is you have millions of years of evolution backing up what plants want to do they basically want to survive and multiply so if you drop a seed into the ground and you don't know anything about it what's happening probably the seed will grow uh, so, you know, you, you can you can get pretty far in gardening without knowing anything, which is nice, but I just like to push a little further and, and uh, you know, learn a little more and make the garden even better. And also, one thing that I think is very pertinent is in these times of a changing climate, or if you even move to a new garden site, you can – knowing more about what's going on can help you adapt – your gardening to suit new climate conditions, a new gardening site, new soil, things like that. And and then the the final thing that I reason I wrote the book is because I think it's very interesting. Well, what's going on? <laughs> I absolutely share that sentiment, and that's a perfect segue. Let's start talking a little bit more about that book. So your book, The Ever Curious Gardener is really about understanding the way that nature works and how to use natural processes to tinker and experiment to get better results. So my question for you is, how has your own curiosity helped you to find success in gardening? Well, for instance, uh, you know, I had uh, 
a pest problem on my blueberries. Blueberries are one of my favorite fruits, perhaps my favorite fruit. And and I've been very successful growing them. Uh, every year I get enough to eat all through summer and to freeze and eat all through winter and uh, and never had any pest problems or anything. And then a new pest moved into the area uh, called spotted wing drosophila. And uh, I started speaking to scientists at Cornell about it. I started uh, reading about it. So now it's uh, sort of interesting because we set up uh, um, traps to monitor the pest to see when it's coming. And then there's working with Cornell, there's different ways of testing, of not testing, of controlling the pest. And once again, everything I do, you know, people sometimes ask, is, do you garden organically? And, you know, I'm sort of speechless when they say, because I really feel like if you're going to garden well, you garden organically, automatically. So, um, so, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to start spraying pesticides on my blueberries because that sort of takes the fun out of eating them and growing them. So I started researching and, and, uh, and, and speaking to the scientists at Cornell. So now we have these traps that we're helping to test for Cornell that we hang in the, in the blueberry planting. And I have to renew it every year with, uh, not every year, every week I spray this, uh, this bait on it that has uh, a fairly low level pesticides, boric acid in the bait. And it attracts the insects. And last year was very successful. Um, so that's one way I learned to control them. Another way, just researching it. Uh, if you harvest the fruit really quickly, you know, as soon as it's ripe and you put it in a refrigerator for, for two days, it kills the larvae. Uh, so that's another way. And you know, so I just researching different ways of controlling this pest. And it makes it really interesting. And, uh, and we controlled it. So that's good. <laughs> Marvelous. Now let's move back to something that you mentioned earlier with your graduate degree in soil science. Um, it leads me to this, this quote that I've always found extremely useful and, and I'm probably butchering it and I, I've honestly forgot the person to credit, but it's that uh, a smart farmer grows soil, not plants. Plants grow themselves. And so let's start at the beginning. How can you diagnose your soils and improve them effectively with natural and organic methods? Because I know that this is where pretty much all of the illnesses and issues in a garden originate. Right. Well, I agree with um, uh, the person who said that. And I have heard that quote. And I also can't remember uh, where it came from. But, uh, but I do think that uh, fundamentally... Good soil, you know, like house built on a good foundation is important. Uh, same with good soil. And, and as I said, since my first, uh, learning in, in agriculture was in soil, gave me a really deep respect for it. An editor, uh, a magazine editor was once visiting my garden for some photos for an article. And when they, he saw my compost piles, he said, he, uh, jokingly accused me of, uh, just having a garden as a vehicle for all the compost because I really like to make compost. I mean, I have maybe two. <laughs> yeah, we do this. I have maybe thing. twenty. Yeah, I have maybe twenty five hundred square feet of vegetable garden, which gets most of my compost. And I have about um, probably let me think five, ten, you know, maybe a dozen compost piles that are each, uh, you know, more than a cubic yard. So that's you know, uh, twelve tons of compost, twelve plus tons of compost and uh, it's really nice because i make so much that i really have more than you know i have to make sure i use it because compost is a dynamic material it's always breaking down which is good 
except it's good if it's in the garden, not just in a compost pile. <clears throat> so it literally will disappear if I don't use it. So I have to keep using it. So, um, so I do think that soil is the very fundamental to a good garden. Although I have to say, I, I don't totally agree that, you know, all problems lie in the soil, you know, any problems that arise lie in the soil because there's a lot of factors. This is another thing that I find very interesting about gardening is that it's, there, it's a biological system with so many things, so many inputs that it's hard to sift out, you know, what's doing what. Yeah, how do you narrow it down to just one or two variables? You have to take in so many things into consideration when you're dealing with living right. systems. What's one thing about knowing about what's going on and observing and then making good guesses? But, you know, say if you have a pest problem that arises, it's, you can't always uh, blame it on the soil. It might be, you know, the environment changed. It might be a different humidity, different temperature. It might be the pest was never there and, and just came in and it doesn't have any predators. So there's all sorts of things going on. Uh, there was, I had a pest problem, not to digress, but in my greenhouse, I have a small greenhouse, right? Consider it small, 400 square feet. And one thing I grow in there, um, I get, I grow stuff year round in there. So it's slightly heated, marginally heated. So it doesn't uh, freeze, but it uh, doesn't get heated much above freezing. So I grow uh, figs in the greenhouse because I'm too far north to grow figs outdoors. Oh, cool. And I've always grown it very them very successfully. And then about four years ago, I started getting uh, um, mealybugs on the figs. And it was, it was really just sort of taking away my whole crop almost because they, as the figs uh, start to ripen, I think it just puts more stress on the plants. And this is conjecture. It's not 100% true. Uh, puts more stress on the plants. And then, uh, you know, they start to weaken and then the figs get all attacked by the mealybugs also besides the, they're attacking the leaves. So I was really bummed out. And then a couple of years ago, or maybe it was last year, I did some research, looked up that there is a fig mealybug and there are predators for that. So in my greenhouse, I for my greenhouse, I ordered the predators and uh, it was quite successful. I ordered them in April and they seemed to do a good job. But then I noticed uh, in uh, midsummer before the figs started ripening, uh, they were starting to build up again. So I ordered them again. It's sort of uh, funny that I um, the predators were quite expensive. It turned out to be $80 for each uh, shipment. So it's $160 for and what four predators fig were trees. Those? They were a type of uh, lacewing and a special type of um, uh, ladybug, cryptomeria. It's called a special type of ladybug that's really just for the fig squad well, only, but it is uh, for fig scale, uh, scale or mealybugs. And uh, well, I figured that I was harvesting at least 160 figs, so it was $160, so it was a dollar a fig. So I justified in my mind at least that it was still worth it. But then I was thinking maybe I could get the, the insect to overwinter in the greenhouse. So I uh, put fine screening over every entranceway and the, the roll-up walls. And then this spring, I was thinking also, well, what's the difference? Because I grow figs outdoors in pots also that I bring uh, to my cold basement in winter because sure. figs do like some cold weather. And uh, I was thinking, what's the difference? Why don't I ever get it outside? But I do get it inside the greenhouse. I was thinking maybe it's the environment. Maybe it's like more moisture or maybe just spritzing of water on the fig trees would sort of knock them off. So then uh, this year, I did not order the, uh, the beneficial insects, but uh, every uh, week, not every week, every day, 
I would give the figs a pretty hard spray of water, which would perhaps knock the insects off or perhaps increase, well, would increase the humidity. And, uh, or the insects, if they did overwinter, they also like high humidity. The, the, um, not the, the beneficial insects, not the, the, uh, mealybugs. So, uh, so there's a good example of there's a lot of things going on. And I'm not sure if it's the, uh, the, uh, predator, the good beneficial insects surviving. I'm not sure if they were there anyway. And I'm, what I'm doing has nothing to do with success. But the fact is, I have, I, every, day almost i'd look at my figs very carefully and i do not see any uh mealybugs on them so it's i would say thus far it's 100 percent success and uh you know i can guess at what what's doing it but i do not know for sure see what i love most about this and it's really well reflected in your book is a window into your decision making and kind of troubleshooting process within your living systems i can see how you kind of came to the conclusions and narrowed down some of the options that have helped you find success in dealing with issues that have come up so one of the things about soil that i'm really interested these days and that we're doing a lot of experimentation on here at the farm is remineralizing the soil and we're using different types of beneficial bacteria and ferments to try and break it down in order to make it more accessible to the plants at their root system faster than would happen through sort of regular biological processes. Is there any recommendations that you can give us or to our listeners on ways that you've found to help remineralize the soil within kind of an accelerated time point? So um, I guess you're probably not going to like this answer. But I think that when it comes to, you know, soil is, has always been a great unknown and now people are discovering new things about the soil. And I think there's a certain hubris uh, that people have that they think they are doing things. You know, when people talk about, you know, I want to make a compost that it's more fungally active versus more biologically active. You, know, you put a soil that's got a lot of, say, uh, wood material. Uh, I mean, you put material into a soil that's got a lot of a woody type stuff in it. So, you know, presumed this make more fungal. But, you know, once the fungi are finished with their work, it becomes uh, bacterial. And uh, so getting back to your remineralization, I think that uh, except in certain cases, soils have plenty of minerals. They have plenty of organisms. And the way you increase the organisms is really by giving them food, not by – this is my opinion – based, you know, on some knowledge. So so the way you increase the organisms isn't by uh, seeding the soil with them, it's by feeding them what they like and basically what these organisms like, what they need for energy or, or uh, carbohydrates, which are bulky organic materials. So I would say that if you, if you like just add a lot of organic matter to your soil and, you know, compost is one of the best ones, you know, this is like 90% of being uh, of good soil care, and you don't have to even be a scientist to know that. But, uh, you know, so I'm not a big fan of a special ferments. You know, somebody sometime maybe will do a study and see, you know, somebody makes all these ferments and see what the soil is like a week after that. Uh, and my guess is that's not going to have much effect as opposed to, um, you know, just adding, as I said, a lot of bulky organic materials, uh, you know, which is somewhat easier, though it involves more muscle, I guess, but uh, less, less uh, you know, concocting of materials. 
Yeah, for sure. It seems like uh, bacterial stimulation is the same around a lot of different practices. I know I've been looking into like the health aspect and, and uh, assisting the health of your microbiome inside of a human body. And that's the same thing. You have to give it a lot of prebiotic ma- material, which is their food source and gives them sort of the nutrition that they need to propagate naturally and in a healthy sort of homeostasis within the rest of the biology in the body. Yeah, and it goes back to that quote that you uh, were trying to remember about, uh, you know, basically you feed the soil, you take care of the soil, basically you feed the soil, and feeding the soil doesn't mean spreading 10-10-10, of course, it means you want to exactly. feed the organisms in the soil, you want to feed them what they need, and mostly, the thing they need the most is carbon, second thing they need the most is nitrogen, and then everything else, and if you feed them a wide variety of materials, uh, you know, there's a whole spectrum of, nu- of nutrients in there. And getting back to your soil, I guess there are soils that could be deficient in certain minerals. I mean, the first thing I would do is do a soil test to see if, in fact, there is a deficiency of certain minerals. Right. And right. if if there is, you know, I would add those materials or add, uh, you know, materials that have those minerals. And one thing I am a big fan of sort of just to, uh, you know, I don't have a farm, so it's not a, it's not a farm that I'm trying to make big money from. So I can do things that aren't necessarily economical. But one thing I do think is, uh, just to, you know, my compost product gets a whole, whole spectrum of materials added to it. You know, the, the more diversity, the better, in my opinion. And, uh, just to, make sure i sometimes add kelp to my compost pile or to my soil because i figure very unscientifically that we all came from the sea so the sea has everything that we need (laughs) i like that so let's talk now about the first topic in your book because that's one of the ones that i'm really new to and fascinated by and of course that's plant propagation Uh we've been experimenting a lot with grafting cutting seed savings and cloning here on our farm in sununa And as we start to plant out our living fences and prepare for planting out the orchard this year, um, could you give us some example by, um, hang on, let me say that again. You give me some insight in how can someone tell by observing a plant what the best way of propagating it might be and start to breed for better genetic selection. Well, some plants, uh, as far as propagation, there's basically two broad categories of propagation sexual and asexual so asexual is cloning sexual is where you you know cross two plants or they naturally uh, cross or they self-pollinate and they make plants that are different from the mother plant so if you know of a plant that is really good a a certain clone or maybe it's a variety that's available commercially you could just uh propagate that uh asexually or or by, you know, by cloning and the different cloning methods would be grafting. I do a lot of grafting. I, I'm sort of addicted to cloning plants. What I do is every year, I'm, you know, while I'm, uh, just as another example, I grow a lot of black currants, which is my, uh, also one of my favorite fruits. And they're very easy to propagate by cloning. So, and they have to be pruned every year fairly heavily. So every year I prune them and I have all these stems. And I'm thinking, geez, I can make each one of these stems into a whole new plant. I know. Isn't but, that amazing? You know, I, have, I, I get such a kick out of that too. But the, but the thing is I have enough plants. <laughs> but I can't But then help you can myself. sell them or give them to friends. You can't well, have too many plants. Once, right. Once you, well, actually, you can, I think. But maybe. Actually, yeah, within a space. You can, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but, uh, 
well, also, also, I I do find that if I have too too many plants, I won't be able to give really really good care to those that I have, and I really like to try and keep it down. Although it's hard to so where I can really you know focus on every plant and give it the best possible care, you know whether it's pruning, whether it's soil treatment, or whatever. But uh, but so anyway, this so the stem. So you're right. I do uh, propagate a whole bunch of them because I can't help myself because it's you know it's like a disease, and uh, and then some I give away, and some once a year I have a plant sale here, and it's sort of like this is this is the outlet for my uh, my mania. So once a year I have a plant sale for two and a half hours, and a whole bunch of people come two and a half hours and clean everything out, and then I can start propagating it. But anyway, getting back to your question, so how how would you um, do that? So if you have a plant that you know is a good plant, you you could propagate it. And as you might guess, I'm really uh, a big fan of researching things beforehand because a lot of these things have been done by people before and there's no reason to reinvent the wheel. So say like where you are, uh, if you had a really good papaya and um, – and you wanted more of this papaya, you research, you know, how do you propagate a papaya? And I happen to uh, grow some tropical plants. So I know that papaya is not propagated readily by cloning. It is propagated by seeds. But some plants, uh, the seeds are fairly homozygous, it's called, where they'll, they'll uh, reproduce pretty uh, accurately or pretty well from seed. And papaya is one of those, and it's very easy to grow from seed and bears quickly. I've actually tried it up this far north. And, uh, so that, that's one way to do it. And then as far as breeding, you could take, you know, if you had a different plant and you were looking for some characteristic and you say you had two different plants, one had some of the characteristics you like, but it's lacking some. Another had other characteristics you like, but lacking them. You could cross them and then the, the seedlings might have all the good characteristics or they might have all the bad characteristics. I have to say, I don't do, do uh, I don't really dip into breeding that much. I think there's so many good plants that uh, mostly I just try and grow them really well. And I, and also I have to admit that uh, breeding is one area of science that I'm, I don't know a lot about. Fair enough. It's one of these things that we're really starting to experiment with as our good friend and neighbor here, Shad Goodsey with Atitlan Organics, is starting to uh, push forward with this community service project in which we're helping to reforest the valley where we live in while preserving the rare breed of native avocados that grows around oh. here and are absolutely fantastic. And what we've done is we've gone around and selected uh, from the native trees that are already growing here and producing really good fruit. Uh, we're starting to take the cuttings and the scions off of those and graft them on to other root rootstock that uh, we then go into uh, mostly what was called cafetal, which is where they grow coffee here in the highlands. And it's a great sort of synergistic relationship because the upper story of the avocados can bring a lot of extra economic benefit while shielding the coffee, which does much better in the shade anyway, and helps to, uh, you know, contribute more mulch to the soil with the leaf droppings and all of these sort of synergistic benefits. So that's one of the reasons why I've gotten so into propagating yeah. plants lately. Well, that, that sounds like a great thing. And I'm very jealous because avocados, there's a number of tropical fruits that I wish I could grow. And avocados, one of them, I actually have grown them. I, I, I had some, you know, people in the north, in cold regions, they often plant avocado seeds and get their avocado trees, and then it's sort of decorative. So I've done that, 
but then I decided I'd really like to try and grow avocados. So I've gotten sign wood, uh, of name varieties. And, uh, and also the nice thing about, you know, when you graft, if you have a mature, this is one thing that's, that's, that I find very interesting is that if you have, say, if you're looking at your avocado trees and you find a good wild one and then you have uh, something to graft it on, maybe a seed, seedling avocado that you planted or maybe an existing one that you sort of lop back and just top work, uh, that, that graft will bear much more quickly than if you just, um, planted, you know, took a, a seed from the plant and had it grow. Yeah, exactly. It's a great way to accelerate the the maturity of the plant so that you start getting a harvest much faster than if you had just started it from from seed, right? Right. Well, not to be a stickler, but I always like like to have the terms exactly right. It actually does not accelerate the maturity. It accelerates the fruiting because when you take – the whole thing is – and I have a little thing in my book about juvenility versus maturity. So if you plant plant from seed – it has to go th- when you first plant it. It's a, in a vegetative state, and then at a certain age, depending on the plant, it could vary. It becomes mature, and then it could. It's in a sexual phase, and then it can reproduce in flower and fruit. And uh, you know, for some plants like a radish plant, this will happen in a month. But for an apple tree, for instance, this for in the north, uh, you plant the seed, and it might uh, just make leaves for ten years, and then. Then it will change and become mature and uh, and bear fruit. But when you take that stem off a plant that has been bearing uh, fruit that is mature, and you graft that, that wood is already mature. So that's one reason it bears so quickly because it is mature. It just has to grow a certain amount to get build up a certain amount of energy, and then it fruits. But uh, but getting back to the avocado that I did graft, I did get flowers on it. Oh, fantastic! But I've never gotten a fruit. Yeah, but I never got a fruit. And I know about pollination, and I took care of that too. But right, like, I, I had been. There told, are still some uh, limitations to your place, right? Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, so that's that's a great thing to be uh, developing good avocados. And the other thing, the other advantage, uh, especially from what you're doing, of planting them from seed, a lot of them from seed, even though it might take longer to bear. Or and you can shorten the bearing from seed too if you put it on existing rootstock because it'll grow faster and right. it'll. Uh, so one advantage of that is you have a lot of genetic diversity there. So right. you know I yep. know that. I know we're going to try and find you know, a balance between those. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, yeah. Like hanging on to the really good genetics of the trees that we know are going to bear really well, but every so yeah. often propagating a few from seed to make sure that we don't end up with kind of a. Uh, shallow gene pool that's subs- more susceptible to pests and and, um, and disease, I suppose. Right. Sounds like a great plan. Let me ask you a question. Uh, just out of curiosity, of these wild avocados, what percentage make good tasting and you know reason- reasonably sized uh, and you know with a reasonable amount of flesh in them uh, fruit? Well, so it's hard to say exactly because I haven't been working on this uh, project. This oh. is mostly being spearheaded by Atitlan Organics and we're offering some oh, support and consultation. Yeah. But having lived here in this valley, I can tell you that um, one of the reasons why we came up with this uh, this program is because there's tons of avocado trees already. Um, fortunately, this valley isn't too terribly deforested, but it continues to be kind of cut down for small milpa which is mostly corn and bean and squash production especially on the sli- yeah. steep slopes can cause terrible erosion and we've had you know mudslides blocking roads and things like that and especially yeah. in those vulnerable areas 
we need stuff with deep root systems to prevent us just losing all the topsoil. And the avocados that are here are mostly pretty old and a lot of them have kind of stopped fruiting and there haven't been that much replacement um, as, oh. as time goes on because a lot of them, as they get older, just get chopped down for firewood because that's still kind of the main fuel right. source for a lot of the locals here. And we just want to make sure that we don't start to lose this amazing genetic diversity of one of these areas of the world where like avocados are native to here. And so they naturally do really well, but the ones that have started to be planted are almost all Haas because people can get kind of a better market value for it and it's easier right. to sell. But the trees that are producing really well here are actually tastier, much larger and growing without any maintenance than the Haas in comparison, which need to be babied a lot. And so we really want to try wow. and bring back this genetic diversity and these, you know, really high performing, really high fruit bearing trees that are starting to kind of fall out of fashion because so far there's been less of a market for them. Yeah, I'm surprised there's not some uh, government agency supporting this. You know, maybe there is. Know, we might have to look planting. around a little bit more, but we're kind of trying to spearhead yeah. it at least for our community first. Right. Yeah, and planting corn and beans, uh, you know, tilling tropical soils is always like uh, not a great idea to do it. You know, you obviously might have to do it somewhat, but uh, but that really uh, degrades the soil quickly. Yeah, in, tr in the yeah, tropics. definitely, exactly. Now let's switch gears again a little bit here because I really want to get into the nuts and bolts of this book and and one of the main things which you're trying to promote, um, which namely your attention to the science behind each of these aspects of gardening in your book is surprisingly fun to read because even the drier information kind of comes paired with interesting anecdotes and stories that made the facts and the data much easier to see the practicality in. You seem to have a really wonderful way of seeing the poetry and the magic within the natural world, but through a scientific lens. So my question is, what balance between sort of intuition, mysticism, and science understanding do you kind of recommend for the average person? Maybe somebody who doesn't have uh, advanced degrees to, to sort of inform them in the back in order to find success within plant care. Wow, that's, that's a question that can... I don't know. I guess I could give answers that could rile people up. <laughs> but well, let's um, just get your opinion. I, I mean, I'm not going to try and get anybody too riled okay. up. <laughs> so, 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 for as far as intuition, you know, intuition I think is based on things that you know, and uh, and then you sort of put together subconsciously. I don't think intuition just comes out of the clear blue. And uh, but I think the important thing is, you know, even if people aren't schooled in all, you know, in you know, very deeply in the science that's going on, I think it, a lot of it has to do with uh, your perspective and how you look at what's going on. And uh, one example I think I give somewhere in the book um, is, why not? I've had a little epilogue about the scientific method. So, you know, a lot of times people do things in the garden and they, uh, and then, then they get a result because, you know, there's also you know, gardens are not the same. Everything, you know, that's one thing also I like about gardening. It's, uh, it changes somewhat every year. Uh, so somebody will do something in a garden and then in their garden very deliberately, uh, maybe for a problem. And then, uh, maybe the problem will go away and they'll say to themselves, you know, well, I guess, I guess that's, I made the problem go away. Or, you know, maybe they'll do something just by intuition 
and they'll get a result. And uh, I think, you know, people should really take a more objective view of like everything that's going on affecting plants and, uh, and be very careful. I guess not just in gardening, a lot of things in life, just making cause, cause and effect just because, you know, X happened and Y happened after that doesn't mean that X caused Y. Yeah, the difference and, between uh, you don't correlation and causation, yeah. right? And and this is something that uh, I know I'm always uh, uh, on top of my wife because she she does this. She doesn't do it that much anymore, only because I, um, you know, what was it? There was some something happened with our ducks that uh, I don't know, and it wasn't cause and effect necessarily. Oh, I know. If I can tell a little story, she was saying yeah, uh, she was trying to get our. She was trying to get our dog to go in the water to swim. Our dog likes water, likes likes to wade in the water and stuff like that. And she was saying how she once had a dog that she went uh, took to the beach then, and it had never swam. And then she took it into deep water, and then it was swimming. And how she taught it to swim. And uh, yeah, I just yeah. had a point. I just had to roll my eyes. I said, you know, the dog was the dog ever in swimmable water? And she sort of sheepishly said, no, <laughs> before it had never been in swimmable water. And, you know, there's different breeds of dogs, some and different temperaments of dogs. Some like to swim, some don't. So to say for her to say that she taught the dog to swim, uh, she sort of laughed after I said that, uh, <laughs> acknowledged what i said but you know so in the garden stuff like that uh, happens all the time i mean i'm sure a ton of it happens within our own experiments here on the farm and it's it's it can be really hard to diagnose whether it was something that you did that caused that change or that was kind of incidental and the change happened on its own you kind of have to go through a couple of seasons and be very uh observative of what's actually going on in order to try and figure out what the the kind of the key ingredient was that caused the change right and sometimes, you know, gardening's garden is a complex biological system, and and you might not be able to, you know, to to figure out exactly what the cause and effect is. And I think the one thing that I'm ready to do, at least, is just accept that. Okay, so that you know, for instance, my figs with the mealy bugs. I mean, I got a great result. I did something, but other things I know are going on. I'm not saying that my spraying the plants every year that does seem like it. Uh, did cause that, you know, I hope it did. I'm going to keep spraying it and perhaps it, it's not needed, but, uh, you know, it happened. Yeah. I mean, we've got a similar story like that here. We've been, uh, testing a lot of different bio ferments and, um, kind of compost teas lately, trying out different recipes uh-huh. and such. And we've been having trouble with our kind of green pole beans growing in between the heritage corn in our kind of permaculture milpa system here in the market garden. Uh-huh. And we've recently sprayed all over our nice compost soil and have seen a lot of these, uh, bean plants sort of spring back. However, it also kind of corresponded with the time when we started to get a whole lot more sun. And it's hard to say if those additions to the soil were really what caused it to to do better or if it was the increase in sunlight that just, you know, gave it a little extra boost. So we're going to have to keep experimenting over time and try out a couple of different variables. Like perhaps next season we'll only spray a portion um, and leave another one alone. You know, there's a lot of different ways where you can investigate deeper, which I'm sure you know. Yeah, and actually, uh, person, I think I read was reading your blog before we spoke, and it mentioned something about your ferments or, or some article on your website, and mentioned something about the ferment, ferments and the good results, 
And I was thinking that exact thing. I was thinking that, you know, maybe it was just time or age of plant, or as you said, it could have been sunlight happening then too. And uh, one problem is that a lot of people, especially with compost tea I found, uh, a lot of people start off believing that this is a good thing. So basically they they sort of see it, they see everything in that light. And, uh, you know, so they right, spray you start to believe tea, your own it. placebo effect, essentially. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the problem is, so you said, uh, you know, maybe you wouldn't spray it certain parts of the planting next year which is a good thing that's like the you know sort of a a bare minimum you know experiment that might sift out uh what the cause and effect is but most people if they really believe something they're not ready to not treat all the plants i mean if you think compost tea really is definitely going to benefit all your plants how could you not spray half of them because Right, exactly. The other half is going to suffer. Potentially, yeah, exactly, leaving them to not do so well. Now, you've mentioned to me in the past that you're really passionate about bringing science back to its rightful place in our society. And this is one of the things that I would love to hear kind of more of your opinion on. Where do you see the threats to to scientific understanding coming from? And how can we do our part to separate myths or bad science from the real deal? Yeah, well, I definitely think that science is threatened now, and a lot of it's, you know, based in politics uh, here in the U.S. At least, I don't know how common this is elsewhere. Of people like distrusting science because you know it's uh, you can't trust the scientists or the government is is uh, you know pushing an agenda which isn't science. Uh, so there's a lot going on, and and also because people are sort of. You know, in some ways, they get freaked out by science. They think it's like beyond them, and it, it's not beyond them. Anybody can learn a certain amount of science. It's just a question of how deeply you want to get, and especially if you have that, you know, that attitude I was talking about of just really trying to just be objective, whether or not you know the science. Um, you, you know, whether you know when I, I guess I tend to doubt almost everything. So if I see a, a sign, you know, some finding that somebody said. And uh, and just doesn't ring true from, you know, my experience and what I've learned uh, academically. You know, what I'll do is doubt it, and then I won't just sit there doubting it. I'll, I'll actually try and find the original paper that was published, just because I have been trained in this, and read it and see if there's some something that doesn't ring true. And often that happens. And uh, so that's one thing I think is just cultivate an attitude of uh, not – necessarily believing everything that's written but kind of healthy uh, not skepticism. necessarily disbelieving something yeah but not necessarily disbelieving everything just because it's science i mean i find it interesting that there's certain science that um you know people say you know a lot of i i i give a lot of lectures at organic farming conferences and and at organic farming conferences just the the people that go to it so generally people like the idea just as an example of compost tea and if you read a lot of the literature on compost tea it's not as uh beneficial as as definitively beneficial as people would think i mean Mm. there's a lot of studies that show it has no effect a lot of Mm. studies that show it has no effect and some studies that show it has a negative effect but people love to love something like that so they embrace it but uh, it's interesting if you want to – if you go to the same conference, the same people, for instance, uh, you know, people uh, doubt the theory of evolution too. Some people think the whole world began 
universe began 6,000 years ago. And it's, I find it interesting that the same people that would embrace compost tea would doubt, would, would of course, uh, not embrace this other, uh, unsubstantiated science. Hmm. So I don't know if that made sense, but, uh, so I think, so objectivity is not something bad. I think objectivity, uh, and, and knowing the science, I mean, it's like, you know, you know, people, when people talk about, say, uh, not to keep harping on compost tea, say the benefit of compost tea. I mean, to me, it's, it's not like I'm, uh, dissing compost tea, but, you know, I make a lot of compost. And when I put it on the ground, the rain falls or the irrigation goes on. And basically I have compost tea, but even more than compost tea going to the soil because I have all the, Things that are in the compost going to the soil, not just what what you can uh, leach out by you know aerating it or not aerating it with water for a while. So so that so that's an example of something I'm skeptical about. But um, but I actually did some, do some testing here, not as as uh, rigorous as I hope to someday, but on compost tea, and I did find uh, I had a problem with peas in my garden in the last few years. There's some uh, root from and I think it's a fusarium uh, uh, rot, and then I did read that compost tea. Uh, from reading a lot of research articles on compost tea, it seemed like the most benefit would come by using compost tea uh, watered right into the soil, which sort of makes sense to me because compost organisms, microorganisms, if they're going to be beneficial, they they thrive in dark moist nutrient rich environments whereas you know in the leaf you have the exact opposite conditions so uh so i figured maybe this this would work for the fusarium and uh and it didn't have to be aerated compost tea a lot of research showed that you just make a tea you know, just mix it with water and then and then strain it out so i did try that with my peas for the last few years and i think although i haven't uh tested it rigorously enough as i said I think there might be a benefit, so it's worthy. It's worthy of further investigation. In exactly, my like it's a process, and you know, as you mentioned yeah. earlier, these living systems are dynamic. They're constantly shifting. There's always new variables being introduced, so it makes it quite a difficult right. task to narrow down things and find real answers. But it's sure a lot of fun and potentially extremely nutritious to do these experiments. Yeah. So there's really yeah, no basically. loss. Yeah, basically get good food every year anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now before I let you go, I know you've written a number of books aside from your most recent one, The Ever Curious Gardener, which we've talked about today. Could you tell our listeners where they can find your books for purchase and any other resources that you'd like to share with us? Uh, first of all, they can find them on my at usual outlets, you know, Amazon and those things. But uh, you can get them on my website, which is at... Uh, www.leereich.com and that also the website also has a blog post that I do every week uh, to say what's happening here on the farm and and uh, you know talk about sometime soon I'll talk about my fig successes Although I keep thinking all of a sudden maybe the mealy bugs are just waiting somewhere in, in the wings and they're going <laughs> to come in just as the figs are ripening I guess it's I always a risk so, no. <laughs> Right, right. I would have seen them. So that's one place to get uh, good information. The other place uh, that I really turn to for information is on the web. But I think you have to be, as everyone knows now, very selective in uh, what you believe that's written on the Internet. 
And I generally do believe, uh, res- you know, some uh, um, university research sites. And so whenever I do a search on the web, I put after the search site colon edu, and I get a university site or site.gov, and then I get a government site. I think mm. that's a good starting point for good information. Not that, you know, it's always to be trusted. And one example of that is when I started out, which was decades ago, when I had moved into agriculture at that time, organic gardening was really poo pooed. I mean, you know, I have a textbook from back then, which is a great textbook, but they have a, a, just a short, very short section of organic gardening and basically saying, you know, how it's, you know, just folly. So, uh, you know, so you take that into account, you know, I learned a lot in my graduate studies and I, and they were, you know, not, promoting organic in any way, shape, or form. Even when I first started working for Cornell, they would uh, poo-poo organic. But, um, but you know, you just take that into account. Okay, so they don't like organic, but there's a lot of solid information besides that. You know, yeah, you learn, yeah, taking you everything learn about, in context. Uh, but you learn about you know, nitrogen soil. You know, here's, here's the different forms of nitrogen soil. That doesn't relate to organic or non-organic. It's just nitrogen soil. Right, it's Although just the information. You can do with it what you want. But when you, yeah, and when you learn more about how nitrogen is transformed in the soil, in the soil, which is one of my special interests, is uh, then it really does relate to organic agriculture as opposed to conventional agriculture. Fantastic. Well, hey, Lee, it was such a pleasure talking to you today. I really appreciate the insights that you shared with us, and I had a great time reading through your book. Um, If anybody wants to get in touch, I'll have links to your website and your blog on the show notes for this episode on the website. So again, thank you so much for taking the time today. Let's let's do a follow-up sometime. I would love to check in with you again, share some of the results of our own experiments, and hear what you're working on as well. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks. All right. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.